Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the Hyperion Hub, your meeting place for all things Disney. Now your hosts. Hello and welcome to the Hyperion Hub, your meeting place for all things Disney. I'm John Alois and joined by Sean Dagenhart. I'm Sean Dagenhart. And John Rudling Schaefer. Didn't we do this last time? Oh, we've done it uh, 142 okay, times. Okay, the episode, but I, I'm never going to introduce myself as myself. That just seems What redundant. did you say? Hi, how you oh. doing? Good to be here. Oh, that works too, John. Thanks. Nice to see you. Wherever you're listening, wherever you're listening to us, please rate and review so more people find the show. You can follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Hub Hyperion. You can email us at podcast at thehyperionhub.com. Let's start things off with our Disney views and throw it over to Sean. Good job on that introduction. You got all those words right this week. I work hard on that stuff. That's good. Yeah, I can tell you've been practicing. (laughs) Yes, thank you. Well, our beloved Bob Iger, CEO of the Walt Disney Company, has been named in the uh, top 100 most influential people for Time Magazine. Uh, just came out. It's rather exciting. He is um, kind of categorized as an innovator in that I guess they have different categories for their top 100 people, and he is the, the innovator. Um, he said of his return, I was brought back for a reason. The company had gone through a very difficult period, exacerbated by a global pandemic, and more than anything, the company needed stability, needed to establish a set of priorities and focus on them. The only way you end up getting to success is by deciding what the opportunities are and then organizing your people and your company to go after them. Mary Barra, who is the CEO of General Motors on Disney's board, had this to say about Iger. For 100 years, the Walt Disney Company has entertained, informed, and inspired people around the globe through the power of unparalleled storytelling. Bob Iger has guided the company to success for nearly two decades and is one of the best leaders I know. She goes on to say, His authenticity and pragmatism set him apart. True authority and true leadership comes from knowing who you are and not pretending to be anything else. I've personally learned so much from his leadership. So it's exciting for Bob Iger and the company as a whole. Bob Iger has a vision. He's a visionary. And even though some of the ideas that he's tried to implement may not have always worked, uh, the grand vision stays the same. And it's always about storytelling. And he's he's rarely talking about shareholders and, and other corporate speak. It's always about Disney storytelling. There's always a, uh, you know, a high, not necessarily a monumental level, but always optimism in his voice or in his quotes. And you're right. It's a shift away from business, 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 money, shareholders, business, business, into something that, oh, I don't know, takes us back to what the company was about and founded for. Yeah. Guests, he talks about cast members, and he talks about where Disney's going on the story. Right. You're not... Again, I'm not. We're, we've all moved on, as has the company. But you you feel interested or intrigued? I, I mentioned his statement in his YouTube video from the 23 shareholders meeting. You, you want to hear what he has to say? That's not the same always for prior uh, administrations. I think there's a level of trust and just comfort with him. You're like you don't have to worry about the company because he's going to take care of it. And he wears Mr. Rogers sweaters in the park. He does. <laughs> and I would gladly pay higher prices knowing that the storytelling focus is what's driving that. You know, hey, Bob, we we like you. We're fans. Come on the show. We'd love to have you. So this summer, 
a brand new roller coaster has come to uh, Magic Kingdom in Walt Disney World. The first place it was was in Shanghai. And if there was ever a franchise calling for a beautifully lit nighttime roller coaster, it's Tron. And I can't wait to ride it. If you look at the grid and you look at the way the, the uh, film is laid out, it looks like something that you would want to be a part of and, and, and enjoy as far as a thrill ride. All right. We're going to talk about the original Tron uh, film from 1982. Yes, going back in time. Yeah. I mean, you talk. Whew, yeah. You got to remember when it was made in terms of special effects. What year was that? 1982. Okay, second grade. Let's first look at the studio coming out of the 1970s. This was the first full decade without Walt, and the company was trying to forge a new path. It was looking to appeal to wider audiences. In some regards, that meant capitalizing on the science fiction craze following, of course, John, Star Wars. They wanted to create more dramatic films while maintaining Disney magic through the use of cutting-edge technology for the late 1970s, of course. As the story goes, writer-director Steven Lisberger loved early video games in the 1970s. He was an animator at his own studio and began experimenting with computer-generated animation for a potential full-length feature. He and producer Donald Kushner shopped the idea around to various studios. Disney was the only one interested. They wanted to take creative chances as their founders once had, and there the feature developed into a combined live-action animation film. They used a technique called backlit animation, which is animation created with light. By shooting animation mats with light shining through them, filmmakers can create special effects that have a glow to them. Uh, they continued to develop the technique while working on the story. Lisberger wanted to create a game world and plop someone from our dimension into it. Think Alice in Wonderland. Mm -hmm. He had already created the title character in animation for a 30-second long demo to promote his studio, so he built off that. Tron, by the way, is an acronym. The Real-Time Operating System Nucleus. Oh, the the Real-Time operating system system nucleus t-r-o real so time is time is like little time Wait, hold so on a minute the real time operating system nucleus where, where does s come in there the, the s is operating silent system. <laughs> <laughs> well i guess yeah operating Tr system yes, yes, operating, yes i guess that doesn't the roll real off the time operating system nucleus <laughs> Experimental snort. Hey, we're going to go over to Epic, and then uh, we'll be back. Well, you know, all this was inspired by Pong, so take it or leave it. He wanted an Which arena. Which stood for veterans of foreign wars. <laughs> he wanted an arena where his heroes and villains could battle. It was Tom Wilhite, Disney's vice president for creative development, who watched Lisberger's test footage in 1980 and convinced the head of the studio, Ron Miller, Walt's son-in-law, to give the movie a chance. Disney executives funded more test footage of a light disc being thrown and were impressed with the live action mixed with backlight animation and computer-generated visuals. However, Lisberger and Kushner felt like outsiders as they were working with Disney animators. It was a chilly reception. This was the first film to use computer animation. And we've kind of heard this from some of the Pixar folks, early Pixar folks as well. 
who started in Disney animation, who wanted to change things. The Disney animators did not want to mess around in, in computer animation. They just, I think there was a lot of fear and they didn't even want to go into that. Well, even the storyline probably is going to, it just seems so far afield to what they were, you know, their sweet spot. And, and a lot of people yeah. don't like change, which I know that goes against the innovation part of what we were just talking about. But I could see that an old generation kind of going, what, what is this? Yeah, probably. But if you hearken back to like pre Mickey days, I mean, that was Alice's adventures in Wonderland. I mean, that was the whole premise of her going into that world. Yeah, well, I mean, at the at its roots and at its core, the studio was like that. But some of these folks weren't even there, right. you know, in the 1930s, and they liked what they did. Uh, Disney was breaking ground with many areas of filmmaking with this movie. The premise, according to IMDb, a computer hacker is abducted into the digital world and forced to participate in gladiatorial games where his only chance of escape is with the help of a heroic security program. And then Richard Dawson hosts a game show and Arnold Schwarzenegger shows up. Oh, wait, that was a different movie. What is that movie? Running Man. Oh, yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. Weird movie. Survey says. <laughs> Jeff Bridges plays Kevin Flynn, a software engineer who thinks the games he developed were stolen by a senior executive at NCOM. He tries to what break. What does that stand for? I don't know. Okay. I didn't look that one up. He tries to break. WNBC. Into, he tries to break into the system and eventually gets transported into this wild digital world where he has to battle to survive and to recover the stolen data. Other stars included Bruce Boxleitner, David Warner, Cindy Morgan, and Bernard Hughes. Whew! Listen to that lineup. The computer an extension of the human intellect. The NCOM 511, center of the most calculating intelligence on Earth, programmed by master control to survive by all means. Soon, the ultimate tool will become the ultimate enemy. I still do not understand why you want to break into the system. Because, man, somewhere in one of these memories is the evidence. Hey, 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 it's the big master control program everybody's been talking about. Kevin Flynn, computer genius. <laughs> Taken prisoner and held captive within the digital world of the computer itself. Trapped inside an electronic arena where love and escape do not compute.
either of you seen this movie? I have not. Really? I okay. have. All right. Has it been a long time? It's been a long time. It might be time to revisit it. Why? I don't know. I liked it. <laughs> I, 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 there's a nostalgia factor to it. Of course. And yeah. again, you have to appreciate what it was at the time it was made. You're not, yeah. you know, of I course you're not going to be I think we had the book with the record. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm going to get to that. There's I, more. Uh, did you check the script, Sean? I think that's there's on more. several pages behind that. <laughs> Some production notes. The main world computer scenes were shot in black and white. The sets were blacked out with white tape defying the edges. The costumes all had circuitry drawn on them, in some cases with black Sharpies on set. <laughs> following, yeah, following shooting, animators tinted every frame by hand. The CGI work can be seen in places like the light bike scenes. That's insane. I, you know, you do. You, you sit here. So what, 80... Two, so they started so. production in 80, and this thing was done in 82. They, Think about how much work had to go into yeah. that because you weren't fully computerized. I mean, that's... Well, they were under the gun. Um, right. Thir- they, at one point, they worked uh, 13 straight days, which was the Ugh. legal limit. But one of the reasons why they did that was there was this looming strike that never eventually happened. But they, that's as far as they could go. Uh, eight in the morning till 11 o'clock at night. Ugh. Yeah. Wow. Uh, stage four still exists. That's where they shot majority of it. They used so much power to light the stage, they blew grid fuses in the city of Burbank. Hmm. Uh, released on July 9th, 1982, it grossed $50 million worldwide with a $17 million budget. It brought in $70 million in merchandise sales, including successful sales of both arcade and at-home video games, toys, comics puzzles and the read-along record did you have that you said yeah yeah i had it too i still do you name it (laughs) i still do despite all this only child by the way go ahead what were you gonna say well first off so am i second of all i want to see it i'm calling you out (laughs) i'll show you uh despite all this it didn't do the business disney hoped and any chance of a franchise during the decade was killed see that's what i was going to ask it was it was out there and Okay, I was fairly young, but you don't have, you know, everybody hopes is in the studio hopes you get a cult-like following of something, and maybe there are a, a small dedicated group, but Tron was this blip, you know, figuratively and otherwise, and then you don't hear about it, and that's my point with this ride, and then you just don't hear about it, okay, here or there, or it's on some random Sunday afternoon during a Cubs rain out or something, and they'll throw it in there. You know, Rick's sitting there in the studio going, I don't know what we got here. Um, and then all of a sudden, hey, guess what? Well, it's Let's better th- than the 1976 All-Star game that you might <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> it, yeah, you know, I will say this. It was praised by many of the critics at the time. Roger Ebert gave it four stars. Seriously? Uh, four yeah. thumbs up. Yeah. Four well, he was built up. funny, but anyway. Um, so, uh, yeah, people questioned it. And, and, and I have a theory on that, but I just want to say the film did gain popularity throughout the years. John Lasseter said it inspired him to create full-length features based on the CGI animation. It built a cult following, as I said, and finally at San Diego Comic-Con in 2008, test footage for Tron Legacy was shown to an unsuspecting audience. It was a light cycle chase and starred Jeff Bridges 
and the place went nuts. Tron Legacy was released in 2010 and grossed over $400 million. That's nuts. I had a, no idea. Yeah, with a budget of $170 million. Disney considered that a disappointment as well, even though it outgrossed the Star Trek reboot at the time, which has a much deeper root right. know, in uh, sci-fi. The film is directed by Joseph Kaczynski, who directed Top Gun Maverick. Steven Lisberger produced Tron Legacy. Tron Uprising was an animated series in 2012 and 2013 for Disney TV, and it bridges the two films. My theory as to why the original Tron didn't do the business that Disney had hoped is there weren't a lot of computer programmers. I don't think people could relate to the film. Not everybody had at-home computers. I think Mm. I got my first in like... 20, maybe 1998, you know? Well, we were fortunate enough to have the Commodore 64 in our household, but, but yeah. You know, yeah. And, and you weren't programming. You didn't understand the no. terms, ROM no. and RAM and mainframe and things like that. I couldn't in even get the acronym right. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> in 1982. Right. And, 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 and so, okay, this is fun. I think the legacy v- film putting more emphasis on the racing and you know all right americans like racing movies and 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 okay yeah there's that part and we were all more familiar with electronics and computer worlds by what you say that year that came out 2010 yeah yeah and i've also noticed uh going back and watching things that i loved as a kid are not exactly the caliber that i remember them being so for our generation growing up that may have loved the movie to have a reboot that is, you know, technologically advanced and better story, it just, you know, continues that excitement. It had the Daft Punk um, soundtrack too, which really helped carry its popularity. Uh, I love, I love both movies for what they are. In all seriousness. Well, and I think to be fair, I need to watch the original again. I mean, maybe yeah. it was that last Cubs ran out in 1996. The there I did. Yeah. yeah. Um, there is another movie in the works, as you said. Tron Ares is in development. Uh, Lisberger's writing. Joakim Ronning is directing. He directed Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales, and Maleficent, Mistress of Evil. Well, let's do the timeline then. How long after the Legacy movie comes out does Shanghai open? And then is the ride? The ride is not there when Shanghai opens, is it? Uh, let's see. It Tron Light Cycle Power Run opened in Shanghai Disneyland on June 16th, 2016. Um, I don't know when Shanghai Disneyland Park opened. One moment, please. Oh, it's an opening day attraction. It was. Yeah. So intellectual property, something that's aesthetically pleasing and uh, something that there is a following for. So I don't think they're, they're creating a new movie because of the attraction, but it can't hurt. Right? It looks very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Although the ride... I've heard is a little shorter than most. I think I watched a ride through and I was a little surprised. I think it's shorter than the Shanghai version too, Hmm. but I haven't ridden it. So that is Tron. We are, uh, I am a a Tron fan and uh, I've seen it uh, several times and look forward to the, the next sequel. It looks beautiful. It, It does. And we were there last summer and could see the construction and, you know, you're never going to necessarily have the best place to just drop that. You know, you're sitting there at a storybook circus and you're going, wait, what? Or you're, you're driving around on Tomorrowland Speedway. But then you kind of understand. You've got Space Mountain as you look over there. 
and and they had to reconfigure the the railroad through there. So mm-hmm. it's kind of neat to watch. You know, if you look over to that side, because all right, it's okay to have the modern area over there near Tomorrowland with the contemporary right behind it. So I think it's the right place for it in terms of the park. But I also am curious to see what it does for traffic flow. You know, you've got over at Epcot where you have uh, Test Track and all the you know Guardians all kind of in their own separate pods. I guess is what you what you could say. I think it's the right place for traffic flow too. Uh, but I'll just be curious how backed up that's going to get. You know, yeah. As far as theming goes, Tomorrowland's always been an issue, more right. so in Disneyland than in Walt Disney World. Walt once had Circle Vision 360 in Tomorrowland, which was uh, a, a, a film about um, America the Beautiful. So, uh, you know, it doesn't always jive, but I think this is one where uh, it can fit in with its surrounding and its environment. I think it looks pretty good there. I'll be curious how long, I don't want to say cloth, I'm, I'm oversimplifying. I'm just curious how often they're going to have to replace, I mean, that's that surface. The canopy. Yeah, that's, oh. that's a good way to describe it. I mean, just like a, a domed stadium, you know, that, that that kind of wear and tear with that, you know, Florida sun. I mean, yeah, they're not going to have to deal with winters, but already there were pictures circulating of fading or, mm-hmm. you know, just wear and tear. So I'm sure it's all built into the budget somehow, but um, it's not just your standard throw some paint on the outside either. Yeah. Sources for this episode include tronfandom.com, imdb.com, boxofficemojo.com, Chicago Sun-Times Archives, The Hollywood Reporter, and simonandschuster.com. What are some of your favorite nostalgic films, especially Disney films? Let us know. Email us at podcast at the Hyperion Hub. Once again, follow us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter, at Hub Hyperion. Wherever you're listening to us, please rate and review so more people find the show. Till next week, have a great one, everybody. We're glad you could join us. We'd love to hear from you. You can email or send us a recorded audio message at podcast at thehyperionhub.com. Find us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The Hyperion Hub is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or its subsidiaries. We'll meet you next time at the Hyperion Hub. Hyperion.